Thoughts. And so with that, let me turn to the first speaker, um, uh, who uh, is uh, Lee Hartwell. And uh, Lee, of course, uh, is well known to the biologists, at least, um, because uh, he was the first uh, to think seriously about how uh, the cell cycle might work in a, uh, from a genetic point of view. He did that with the yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, he did many services for a, 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 the, this particular organism, um, not the least of which is he uh, encouraged a very large immigration of uh, people who had been trained in other things like phage into the field. Uh, I think I'm by no means the only one who read his early papers on, on making mutations in yeast that uh, actually had interesting phenotypes that looked like they were going to bring you forward into understanding what was really going on and saying, boy, that's a really good thing to do. And so we did it. And it was a great open field, and uh, it, it has served everybody uh, really well. Uh, Lee has gotten endless honors for this, all of them highly deserved, including a Nobel Prize, and he is going to tell us about something that he did not write down in his abstract, um, so I'm going to let him uh, tell you what it is. Well, um, th this is a very exciting event, I think. Uh, I'm really pleased to be here uh, at the inception of this new institute. I was actually here a couple of years ago uh, when the institute was at an earlier stage of formation, um, primarily at the invitation of Stan Liebler, uh, a physicist uh, from Princeton and a friend of mine. Uh, who's taught me uh, a lot of things about looking at biology in a different way. And uh, it w at that time, I, I began thinking about um, the past and its relationship to the future. Um, you know, where we are now in biology, as, as David has uh, uh, well pointed out, uh, came from a new way of looking at biology uh, when we were students. Um, and in fact, as an undergraduate at Caltech, um, as a biology major, uh, there were no biology courses at all. <laughs> Just, uh, and uh, in fact, they, in order, they felt bad about that. They felt that we should have some biology. So um, they actually hired a professor from Pomona College and sent us off for three weeks in the summer to learn real biology. Um, <clears throat> It, so it's not um, a foreign concept at all to uh, David and I and many people of our era uh, to realize the importance of physical sciences to biology and uh, the fact that we're re-embracing that and reinvigorating it, I think, is, is, is exciting and, um, and a, a great thing to do. You know, one could ask sort of, uh, David pointed out that this really is a new era. This time it's real. And uh, so one question is sort of why now? You know, what's different about now than 10 years ago? Um, and it seems to me, uh, comparing the past to the future, that the era now is, is rather similar to what it was around the turn of the century uh, in 1900, where cell biology... Uh, was primarily microscopy and uh, description 
and it was uh, very extensive. Uh, lots of different diverse organisms studied and described in, in infinite detail. Um, and it became um, uh, synthesized, and the details became synthesized uh, into a view of the cell as that is very significant because it was sort of a universal cell that is unlike all the diversity of all the different organisms, we look quite different, there was a real realization that underlying that diversity was unity. And uh, E.B. Wilson's book, The Cell, around uh, that time came out, uh, synthesized all this information in a way that, and you read it, is, 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 is staggering how much they understood. Um, so I th imagine that the cell biologists in that day thought that the future would be, you know, more of the same. Um, you know, uh, we can, you know, there's lots of other things to see in there that we're not seeing. There's small things we can't quite resolve, and, uh, you know, and we have to do more of this. And um, so, you know, the question is whether, I think that's, that's a lot of the way we think about what we're doing now, is that this is the era of the genes and, and the proteins, and we're cataloging them, and there's still a lot we don't understand, and um, we, we need to con continue to accumulate this data. Uh, so we're, we're in the gene-centric era, uh, rather than the, um, the um, microscopic structure area. The, the, the question, I think, is, is whether um, that is the future, is, is dealing with the complexity that, that we're generating. And, of course, one of the reasons that we <clears throat> are embracing the physical scientists to come help us with biology is because of the enormous complexity of the data. And, you know, can you help us make sense out of this and simplify it into some, some principles? But what actually happened to cell biology was, was not continuing down that road of structural uh, description, but was a completely orthogonal view of the world, which began with Mendel, wasn't appreciated until around 1900, although he'd done it decades earlier, but was a completely orthogonal view where Mendel just started counting things uh, uh, that came out of crosses. Um, it led to the era of uh, Avery and Watson and Crick and Franklin, and has generated what's now the gene-centric era. So uh, a question that, that I think is fun to think about is whether there will be a new orthogonal view of molecular biology um, when a synthesis of the different fields of science that can happen here um, at Princeton and this new institute takes place and when especially young minds are thinking about it rather than old minds. Um, uh, so I just thought it'd be fun to try to think a little bit about where, um, where the unknown might be. And of course, it's very difficult, uh, it's probably impossible to escape our current mental construct of the world. Um, and so um, it's very hard to think about uh, what we don't know. It uh, seems like there's not much out there that we don't know. It's just because we don't know it's there. But the clues really come from what we don't understand. And so 
that's a place to start. You know, what, what is it that we really don't understand about cell biology? And um, I'm not going to, I mean, the, the obvious recourse is to go to neurobiology because there's loads of things we don't understand there, and that's pretty easy. But let's take cell biology where we think we're getting a pretty sophisticated view of what the cell is. Um, it's kind of fun to think about where's the unknown, what don't we know? And I'm going to talk about something which I think is really deceptively simple, but um, does illustrate, at least for me, a, a huge area of unknown that I don't know how to approach with our current tools and the current way of thinking. And it's basically about how one cell becomes two cells. Um, and most of um, our insight to that process uh, is about uh, DNA replication, the replication of the genetic information. We know quite a bit about DNA replication, and we know about how that replicated DNA gets segregated to daughter cells. Uh, and since that's the information of the cell, I'm going to come back to this concept of information. Since that's the information of the cell, um, that's the most important part anyway, right? But the thing that I, I think is interesting to think about is the fact that we can't make a cell from DNA alone. Um, and, of course, one of the aspects we need is to translate that DNA into proteins. And we've learned a lot about the translational and transcriptional machinery. So that's a set of things that we need in addition to the raw information is all the machinery that's necessary to express that information. But something that's rather astonishing, if you, if you stop and think about it, I mean, given the fragility of life, you know, cells don't live very easily. Um, it's very easy to cook them or um, uh, kill them with too much acid or one thing or another. And yet every cell that exists on the planet has an unbroken history uh, back to the beginnings of life uh, from previous cells. There's an unbroken chain of events, um, or, or the cell wouldn't be here. No cell that exists has ever come from anything but a pre-existing cell. And so the question is, what, you know, what does one cell really contribute to another, in addition to what we know about the DNA uh, and the information? And one way to think about this uh, is to uh, imagine that you're going to build a house, so the cell is a house. And you've got to do it from inside the house. You've got to make a duplicate from inside the existing house. And you don't have any blueprints. You think about this. I mean, you, you can think of methods that you might go about. I mean, you might start by cutting the house down the middle or at least sometime doing that. But you, what you do is a lot of templating. Uh, you'd use a lot of pre-existing structure to build new structure. Uh, just imagine the parts coming through the window and you're having to assemble uh, rooms and various things. So the, the question that I think is interesting to think about is how structure and form uh, comes about in cells and to what extent it's dependent upon pre-existing conditions. So everything that's formed in a cell has the situation that there are pre-existing um, uh, structures in the cell, often of the type that you're trying to form. And how much do we really know about the origin of structure in cells? How, do we, how much do we know about how a nucleus is constructed? 
or a nucleolus or a mitochondrion or chloroplast or a Golgi or a centrosome or for that matter even the cell membrane. I think now we're getting to the era of the unknown. Uh, they're very unsatisfying um, answers uh, or descriptions of, of the process. Um, in many cases, these seem to come from pre-existing uh, organelles of the same type. Um, so templating may play a role. And, and what do we know about um, structural templating, about the continuity of structures aside from DNA? Of course, DNA is templated. Um, the, the, we know so little that um, there's one experiment that comes to everybody's mind when you, at, when you raise this question, right? <laughs> this is the first thing that comes to your mind, David mentioned immediately last night. It's the, it's the paramecium experiment um, that uh, uh, Sonneborn, uh, actually it was done before Sonneborn. Sonneborn did it again. And um, um, basically the paramecium is a fairly big cell. And it has on its cortex a whole array of cilia that move and make the organism move. And they're all oriented in a certain direction, so they all spin in the same direction. And what was done was a very clever experiment, and um, clever, clever to have even asked the question, okay? which was to cut out a little patch of that cortex and turn it 180 degrees and put it back in. And so you've got a little patch where the cilia are pointing the wrong direction. And the interesting result was that when that cell divided, the daughter cells both had this patch pointing in the wrong direction. So the cortex in some way uh, is templated off the pre-existing cortex. Things that we're more familiar with now, for example, heterochromatin, uh, we know that uh, the assembly of proteins along DNA, which um, can silence DNA, um, uh, is, is built uh, from pre-existing structure. It's extended from a pre-existing structure. Uh, one of the things that has taken us all by surprise and I think has enormous implications for the, the, the question that I'm raising is prions. Uh, prions are inherited protein structure a very tiny amount of a protein uh, in our diet can go through our gastrointestinal tract and end up in our brain and completely remodel it. It's a scary thing. Um, and even, you know, forming proteins uh, from DNA, um, there are a whole set of chaperones. I mean, at one time, uh, the beautiful experiments of Anfinson, we thought that proteins just assembled as a result of their, three their, their primary amino acid sequence, but we know that many complex proteins require uh, additional templating. And the, it's amazing that this is an, uh, that, uh, a topic that is not much on our minds right now, because when David and I were students, there were really two parallel tracks um, that were being pursued to understand the origins of order in biology. And one was gene regulation, but the other was the morphogenesis of structures, particularly phage, uh, like T4 and lambda, 
Uh, and um, that's a completely um, beautiful, uh, well-developed uh, field um, in which we learned a lot about how a very complicated structure could be formed. T4 phage is like a syringe with a head full of DNA and a tail that is, has a base plate on it and fibers that come off from the base plate and those fibers recognize the surface of a bacterial cell and the tail then uh, scrunches, uh, contracts and the DNA and the core of the, of the particle gets injected through the bacterial surface and the DNA goes in. It's, a, it's an amazing little um, syringe mechanism. It's formed out of about 50 different proteins and a great deal of work was done uh, initially by Bob Edgar and then, and then Edgar and Wood um, in understanding some aspects of the morphogenesis of this structure. Uh, and the very important principle that came out was that essentially every step in the morphogenesis is templated by the pre-existing step so that the proteins which are going to assemble onto this phage in such, with such strong interactions that it takes eight molar urea to break them apart um, are free in solution until their, their turn comes. And when their turn comes, then they sit down on the pre-existing structure and will form the structure they're supposed to form. Um, so we know from all of these examples that, that templating and assembly uh, from pre-existing templates is a, is a very important um, and well-proven um, and well-studied aspect of biology, but more or less forgotten, I think, today, at least um, not getting very much attention. And so this raises, me, it raises the question to me back uh, to return to this question of the informational content of a cell. What does one cell contribute to the next? And it's, we're uh, very anxious uh, to be glib today and say, oh, you know, we got the genome size, we got the sequence, we know the number of digit, digital, the amount of digital information that it takes to make a human. Um, but, of course, we're completely leaving out the pre-existing uh, cell in which that DNA acts. And the amount of information in that pre-existing cell far exceeds anything in the DNA. Uh, if you, w w one, one of the catalogs I would like to have, which we don't have, is a catalog of all of the proteins that have to be present in the cell for it to duplicate. Um, so obviously the tra translational and transcriptional processes have to be there and some of the chaperones and various other things that, that we can enumerate, but we have not done the experiment to actually say, is protein A necessary uh, for the cell to create a new cell? Um, and, and I don't mean just present in the sense that, you know, if you inactivate the gene, I mean, does that pre-existing protein have to exist in the cell in order for you to go to the next step? Um, but just of the proteins we can list that we would, would have to be there, uh, 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 the amount of information is enormous. And to the extent that there's structural information in that pre-existing cell, the amount of information is essentially to specify the three-dimensional structure of all of the atoms that are present that have to be there in the way they're there. That's an incredible amount of information, whatever it is. 
And uh, the only reason we take it for granted is because we got it several billion years ago, and it just keeps getting handed on every generation. Um, one of the other things I'd like to point out is that a lot of this, um, this interesting biology, this interesting molecular biology, is insensitive to our current technologies. Um, for example, this, is a, this templating is a situation of protein-protein interactions. Um, and, of course, we have two-hybrid um, uh, methodology as a way of mapping out all the protein interactions of the cell. Well, if you think about it, two-hybrid is completely insensitive to proteins that have to preassemble on a template in order to form their conformation so that they can interact with the next protein. That is, if protein B and C interact in some structure, but B does not assume the conformation necessary to interact with C until it has previously interacted with A, two-hybrid won't pick it up. And in fact, in um, uh, Stan Fields' uh, survey of the T7 genome, uh, he didn't find any interactions among the morphogenetic proteins for exactly that reason. Those are most of the protein interactions. Um, So um, let's just take it one step further, just not only one cell to one cell, uh, but um, uh, how about one cell to a multicellular organism? Um, now, nearly all the information that's necessary to make a multicellular organism is present in the, in the fertilized egg, um, except for what's provided by, by environment around it, um, um, which can be a lot. Um, but um, there's no issue, really, beyond what I've already talked about for structures like mitochondria and things like that, which are present in the egg. But what about structures that form later in development that we don't see in the pre-existing eggs? Things like muscle fibers and axons and pigment granules and various kinds of things. Um, uh, is there anything in the egg that's necessary uh, for their eventual assembly later in development? I don't think we can answer that question. Can we answer that question? <laughs> I don't think so. And the fact that we can't points out exactly what, what, what my point is today, which is there is a vast area of unknown in cell biology. Uh, the fact that we can raise a question as simple as that, that would occur in an undergraduate class and would lead to <laughs> uh, uh, exciting new thoughts. I mean, if that happens, if there, is, if there are structures in an egg, and I would point out that one of the puzzles of biology is why spermatocytes express nearly all the genes, all the messages of the genome, um, might be related. Um, if there are pre-existing uh, structures, uh, they, they um, uh, we're back to the homiculus, right? The old theory that there was a pre-existing organism in the sperm, um, but it's just a little different. It's, it's in molecular form. Now, cell polarity gives us a clue. Uh, one of the areas that there has been a lot of really nice work in recently uh, is cell polarity and the development of polarity during development. Um, but what happens 
in, in most of the cases where we know something about the molecular details of polarity is that it becomes a sort of endless regress to pre-existing polarity. Uh, even this polarity that's set up, uh, uh, for example, in Drosophila, dorsal ventral, is due to follicle cells uh, and what they put into the egg. And in yeast, where there's a fair uh, interesting understanding of polarity uh, in terms of where the cell forms a bud, um, that is inherited from the pre-existing cell. Um, there may be some clues in, in things where um, uh, polarity can be altered or recreated, and, and yeast is a, is a fun example this way, because while the cell is polarized to form its new bud on a certain site, the same polarity elements are used when the cell mates, and the cell has to mate with wherever its partner happens to be. They don't move. And so the cell will reorient its polarity toward uh, the daughter. But it's, even that is based upon moving a pre-existing uh, element of polarity. Okay, well, um, uh, there's, there's another issue I could talk about, but I don't think I will. Um, so uh, let me just say that um, what, what I think would really be exciting, uh, and I hope I live long enough to see it, is sort of the next complete orthogonal shift in, in cell and molecular biology that's brought in, uh, won't be what I just talked about, but what's brought in uh, by, by some completely new way of looking at things. And I think the, the kind of place where that can happen uh, is a place that you're creating here where... Um, uh, scientists with uh, very different perspectives on the world uh, come together and talk about things. And it, it's not so much the bringing of different areas of expertise uh, as bringing different assumptions, but what's even more important is because um, they don't have a vocabulary to talk to one another. They have to deal at a very simple level. And it's when we get down to simplicity that we really start to under, find out profound things. And, again, uh, the role of the undergraduate who um, asks those disturbingly naive questions. Thank you. We love questions. Uh, if, uh, if there are any, uh, this is the time. Shy. Yeah, back there. There's sort of an attack on reductionism here, but when you look at the questions you're asking, like the pre-forming of protein structure, the inheritance of protein structure, these are issues which involve, you know, basic principles of protein folding and stuff, as well as all the new concepts. So I don't think we should throw away what's been done before, that somehow you're going to have to synthesize what Dave was talking about and what happened before. Because I think both these things are going to play a role in the future myself. Yeah, so the question was um, uh, the, the issues uh, that I've raised um, have to do with uh, protein folding and protein structure and interaction, and therefore we shouldn't throw away the things that we are already doing and working on. I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, it's, it's not the issue. Um, what I'm impressed with 
is the fact that we have so little insight to such a fundamental question, first, and secondly, that I can't think of any good ways of getting the answers. So that, that just, to me, that is just the way of saying to the next generation of biologists, there's some interesting stuff out there. <laughs> Yeah, so the, uh, the, I think I need to repeat, right, because there's a group outside the room. That, um, so uh, the point was that um, as we learn more about a process uh, like DNA mutagenesis, uh, we can make some predictions. And I guess the implication is if we learn more about proteins and structures in cells, we'll be able to make some predictions. And certainly um, that's true. Um, one thing I think is interesting is that um, with regard to questions like this, uh, generation of structure and function in cells is, um, you know, even when we think we do a definitive experiment, though, there, there is um, a, a, a great unknown. And, you know, for example, the definitive experiment would be to be able to construct an organelle in vitro, you know, like a ribosome, and this has been done, okay? But the problem, uh, and, and I think it's a very serious problem, is that we do that out of finished components, whereas ribosomes in the cell are formed out of unfinished components, and they're finished as they assemble. And the ribosome that gets a f done in the cell is, is formed very efficiently and with very high fidelity properties. And the things that we do in vitro, while it may look like a ribosome, may not be a ribosome. Uh, in that sense, because efficiency is often very low and the fidelity of the product is often low. Okay, thank you very much. Yes. 